You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. We're joined today by Dr. Michael Chen, a professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Rush University Medical Center and the Rush University System for Health. Dr. Chen's practice focuses on minimally invasive treatments of brain and spinal cord vascular disease. Specifically, he is involved in the study and treatment of cerebral aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations of the brain and spine, intracranial atherosclerosis, carotid artery stenosis, acute stroke thrombolysis, and preoperative tumor embolization of the brain and spine. Dr. Chen has authored over 100 peer-reviewed scientific publications and also serves as a senior editor for the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. He currently serves as president-elect for the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chen. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. I want to get us started by talking about stroke symptoms. Many physicians, as well as the general public, are unable to identify common stroke symptoms that would prompt someone to call 911. This delays the use of interventions such as clot-dissolving medications or clot-removal procedures that can prevent strokes. What should providers pay attention to in order to get their patients seen as quickly as possible? Yes, stroke diagnosis is a little more complicated than, say, making a diagnosis for acute myocardial infarction, primarily because the symptoms are quite variable and there's no pain involved. But I have to say, I think most emergency room physicians are are probably able to make a diagnosis of an acute stroke, especially if it's a severe one, because that usually involves some amount of paralysis on one side of the body, aphasia or gaze deviation or neglect. But the issue is, I think now more so than ever, is that since 2015, there's now strong evidence that highly effective therapies exist for stroke, and they're also very time sensitive. Several studies were published in the New England Journal in 2015 that showed that if you have a large vessel occlusion stroke, the most severest type that involves a blockage of a major artery at the base of a brain, 75% of the time, you're not going to do well. You're going to have a severe disability or death thrombectomy can reduce that chance of a horrible outcome by half. So the question is not necessarily whether you can make the diagnosis and what do you do, but have you done some work ahead of time to prepare for the event that that patient does come into your emergency room? Because right now, uh, most of these transfers when patients are evaluated outside hospitals take two to three hours while they're sitting at the other hospital before they get to us and worry about to treat patients six hours or so after onset of symptoms. There's a bit of a workflow that's prepared ahead of time, perhaps knowing exactly what number to call, knowing a workflow to get that patient to get a scan quickly, having transportation options that are readily available and synchronized, having all of that can potentially reduce this sort of new measure that we follow called the door in, door out time to as short of a time as possible and in doing so, Hopefully in the future, we can potentially start treating patients within, say, two to three hours after onset instead of, say, six hours after onset of symptoms. And this would make a tremendous difference in having more patients having salvageable brain to treat as well as our overall clinical outcomes. So I think that that sense of urgency and awareness that a treatment exists is sort of the new concern now with stroke awareness. 
As a high-volume stroke center, the overall goal of the program at Rush is to establish a networking capability so that more stroke patients can be correctly diagnosed, efficiently triaged, and effectively treated so that patients' overall disability can be reduced. How is Rush accomplishing this? These days, it's not enough to call yourself a comprehensive stroke center because you can do a thrombectomy, report a pretty favorable rate of restoration of blood flow and good clinical outcomes because so much is really involved in getting the patient appropriately triaged and transported to a comprehensive stroke center that affects outcomes, you really need to demonstrate a robust outreach program that improves access. The fundamental to this is having a simple one number to call, which is what we have, 312-942-BRAIN. And that immediately is answered 24-7, 365 by an attending physician who can either discuss the case with you and or make the decision right there on the spot to accept the transfer. We also have a number of other tools to improve access by trying to front load the evaluation for a stroke patient. Part of this involves things such as telestroke where high definition video cameras are used that allow the stroke neurologist to perform an exam and potentially pick up subtle clinical neurologic deficits. And also to other types of imaging tools that potentially could be installed at referring hospitals that automatically using automatic artificial intelligence to interpret all of these scans and alert uh, the comprehensive stroke center if a patient has a suspected large vessel occlusion. And therefore, we can really leapfrog the process of getting these patients with large vessel occlusions to the stroke centers that can provide this type of thrombectomy therapy. And so I think All of those measures are means by which we're trying to improve access to care. And it's a lot of work. It's not traditionally kind of how, you know, stroke medicine is, but it's what our patients need. And, you know, those first few hours after a stroke can make such a difference in outcomes. I want to go back and and ask you about thrombectomy and how it's performed at Rush. Thrombectomy is a very effective treatment to remove clots in the brain that are causing the stroke. Can you elaborate and how Rush utilizes thrombectomy along with some of the inherent challenges in using it. Yes, so thrombectomy refers to a procedure that restores blood flow in a major brain artery that is blocked by a clot that is otherwise depriving a part of the brain from oxygen. Much like a cardiac cath procedure, uh, we gain access into the artery either through the wrist or the groin. And using uh, small catheters working inside the arteries, we use x-ray guidance to advance them up to the arteries in the brain. From there, we can take pictures to sort out the anatomy and make an accurate diagnosis. And then we have devices such as suction catheters or stent-like devices to engage and remove the blood clot. What makes Rush a little unique about this is that it's really pretty simple. It's because of our volume. I think we're one of the highest volume stroke thrombectomy centers in Chicago. And as a result, two main things come to mind. I think that result from that one is clinical care is affected in a a positive way. I think for something like stroke, where it generally affects older patients with a variety of intrinsic vascular disease that can make things more technically challenging. These cases can at times be pretty complicated and, you know, you want to be treated at a center that maybe like us that performs, you know, near about 150 thrombectomies a year, rather than some centers that perform maybe like 20 to 30 a year. I think what that really means is that our entire team from the nurse, the technologist, the anesthesiologist, to the physician performing the procedure, we all 
are aware of what needs to be done. We can anticipate what each other's needs are and delivering stroke thrombectomy care is, it really is a team sport. And because of our volume, we're able to, I think, deliver on what we need for the care of the patient. The other thing that comes along with high volume is that we get invited by other very busy stroke centers around the country, as well as our partners in industry to participate in clinical trials that evaluate new patient indications as well as new devices. When a patient comes to Rush, our average thrombectomy time is, is actually around 15 minutes, and we're able to restore blood flow in more than 75% of our patients. And we have access to the newest devices as well as clinical trials. So that's exactly what you want if you're having a stroke. Are you able to touch on any of the current clinical trials that Rush is participating in regarding thrombectomy? Sure. We're involved in several clinical trials looking at indications that currently there is equipoise as to whether or not thrombectomy is helpful, including those patients with fairly large established infarcts on CT scans, as well as those patients that come in with large vessel occlusions and mild stroke symptoms. And the question is whether or not those patients may decline at some point and whether it's better to treat them when they seem to have perhaps not the most disabling deficits at presentation. In addition to that, we're also involved in new device studies that look at uh, optimized suction thrombectomy catheters, as well as newer iterations on the stent retriever device to reliably hold onto the clot, reduce the risk of fragmentation, and remove it in one piece. We're also looking and pretty excited to be a part of new neuroprotectant studies that can be used as an adjunct to restoration of blood flow with thrombectomy. Even those that are considering hypothermia are very fascinating in the sense that you could potentially, by reducing the metabolic rate of the brain, essentially kind of freeze time in terms of the rate of progression of injury and allow you perhaps a better chance after thrombectomy to get the type of recovery that you're hoping for. A strength of the stroke program at Rush is stroke prevention. After treatment, what sort of preventative measures do you initiate so that stroke recurrence doesn't happen? Stroke prevention is as much of a goal when a patient arrives as managing the stroke symptoms that they came in with. Because most strokes are related to the development of atherosclerosis, which is often caused by some combination of ongoing poor diet, being overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, elevated lipids, smoking, inactivity. There's so many different potential variables that can play a role Having a more protocolized approach to managing each and every one of these risk factors is probably the most effective way to address them. We do have multiple servicing services, including patient education advocates, nutrition classes, support groups, and other services that allow the patient to get engaged and be much more active and vigilant in all of these things that are needed to prevent another stroke. And again, I think what we really emphasize here is a team-based approach, and I think that's needed for effective stroke prevention for some patients, and much like we need a very well, highly functioning team to be able to deliver uh, thrombectomy in the emergency setting. And can you touch on some of those risk factors for patients regarding stroke recurrence? Sure. Some of the most concerning risk factors are the more complicated ones, such as high blood pressure, elevated lipids, diabetes, as well as a lot of more lifestyle type risk factors, such as diet, inactivity, and things. And I think addressing each of these is not easy. It, it involves oftentimes a change in one's habits that you've developed over the years. 
And much like somebody who's just had a heart attack, you'd like to think that that would be a sufficient concern and a warning that things are potentially becoming very harmful, that these steps can be made. But I think having services involved available, as well as the experience from from these different providers to help talk patients through the process. And it is a process to hopefully get on top of it. And, you know, we we're pretty vigilant about seeing patients in follow-up and trying to go over these important uh, risk factors to try to keep that risk of another stroke as low as possible. So during the course of our talk today, we've been talking about the ways Rush has overcome certain challenges in handling stroke care. One challenge that you have is in treating LVO stroke or large vessel occlusion stroke in terms of balancing the need to minimize delays and accept transfers of patients into the hospital with patients who come in with false positives, which end up tapping resources. I'm curious about the steps Rush is taking to improve this process. Yes, this is an interesting dilemma that we face quite often, actually. We actually published a a paper on this a couple years after the positive uh, clinical evidence was published in the New England Journal. And we found that over a two-year time period, over 300 transfers, more than half of them did not end up going for a thrombectomy. And we realized that much of that, when we look back and try to understand this, the concern is that whether or not some of these patients that did get transferred, sometimes via air or via a helicopter or, or by ambulance, sometimes on off hours where the, emer- where the whole team had to come in to get ready to receive the patient, whether or not there's anything we could do to potentially minimize that, which was every once in a while is fine, but if it becomes a frequent occurrence, it can be very taxing on resources. What we do now is, as much as possible, try to, again, front load the evaluation. We really encourage hospitals to obtain a CT angiogram of the brain very early or immediately after the patient with a suspected stroke is there. It's very similar, actually, to an EKG for a patient suspected of having an acute myocardial infarction. Stroke is a disease of the blood vessels, and so it, it makes a lot of sense to take a picture of the blood vessels in the brain help you with the diagnosis. On the one hand, to sort of illustrate this this dilemma, you have, say you have a kid who's choking on a piece of hard candy. You don't necessarily want to take the time to take a picture of that, make the diagnosis that it is in fact a candy. What you want to do is quickly remove that and get the airway open again as soon as possible. So similarly for a stroke, there's a lot of data that could potentially be obtained. And generally, you know, a lot of times in medicine, your success depends on having a very accurate diagnosis. But in stroke, that takes time. And the amount of time you take is inversely related to the effectiveness of thrombectomy. We often tell family that the brain is holding its breath, which kind of hopefully illustrates the fact that we need to act quickly. Right now, a lot of our work is really trying to get more information up front which helps us, in, in, but done in a way that's very efficient and very feasible, that, that can be done in the referring hospitals such that it helps us make as accurate a diagnosis as possible, but still doing things as quickly as possible. It's an ongoing process, but it's so worthwhile for our patients. Can you talk specifically about what some of those points you would want to relate to referring providers might be regarding sending their patients in for stroke care? Yes, I think one of the most valuable things we try to discuss with referring hospitals is to be very vigilant for large vessel occlusion strokes because these effective treatment options exist. Usually the exam is 
quite severe when someone's having a severe stroke that's amenable to thrombectomy. The question then becomes how quickly can you not only acquire imaging of the brain and the brain vessels, but allow for interpretation of it? You definitely want to have that threshold very, very low to get a CT angiogram of the brain in addition to the CT scan. What we're trying to invest in is software that automatically interprets these images after they're acquired at the repairing hospitals. But until we get to that point, I think having a way to quickly get the interpretation and sometimes even getting snapshots on the phone and just texting it to us is one way uh, that we've been trying to circumvent this in the interest of trying to get this information over as quickly as possible. But again, I think that CTA of the brain early in a suspected stroke patient is probably one of the most helpful things that can be done early on to expedite things. And, and again, like I mentioned earlier, just having a concept that you want to minimize this door-in, door-out time. You want to get that patient out of your ER ASAP. Because once the patient comes to rush, our whole team is mobilized, uh, ready to go. We have our angio suite ready to go. And sometimes if we have more information up front, we can bring the patient immediately when they enter our doors up to the angio suite within five, 10 minutes and get the procedure started within 15 minutes and hopefully be done with the procedure in another 15 minutes. Efficiency is so helpful. It, it really directly relates with outcomes here. So. I want to switch gears and ask about patients who have had COVID-19 and stroke. And there's been some interesting findings regarding these patients. Can you elaborate on what you've discovered thus far? Yes. At certain times during the pandemic, we, we did see patients with active COVID infections with stroke that transferred in. And some were actually already at rush as inpatients who developed strokes. What we did note was that Similar to what was reported in New York City and in, in Europe was that some of these patients tended to be younger than what we typically see, as well as having more extensive blood clots, which made for more technically challenging thrombectomy procedures. And often there was evidence of abnormal blood clots elsewhere in the body, like the legs or the lungs. Unfortunately, the outcomes among these patients were not so great. They had a longer hospital stay higher levels of morbidity and mortality. It's very interesting in terms of the the thought that this was potentially related with regards to the mechanism of action to a more hypercoagulable state with uh, some groups finding in these stroke patients with COVID-19 elevated levels of D-dimer, fibrinogen, C-reactive protein, something that we struggled with. But I think as a part of providing care uh, to thrombectomy to COVID-19 infected patients, was all the preparation that was taken on the part of the healthcare team to make sure that we were able to not only be appropriately protected, but be able to still deliver the care in a way that was effective. It was a big learning process for us, but I think something we were able to adapt to pretty well. Do you think there's going to be any studies or publications about your initial findings or the need to do future research about this patient population? I think... A lot of that research is already going on right now. It's a, such a moving target that it's hard to, to know exactly what the most important questions are a few months down the road, uh, potentially, if, especially if, if vaccines sort of change the framework of this. It's such a moving target, but <laughs> a lot of this was just trying our best to adapt. So as we wrap up, 
what would you want your fellow clinicians to know about stroke treatments at Rush? Yeah, I try to summarize, hopefully, what the three things maybe that I would love to be able to sort of emphasize is that for large vessel occlusion strokes, effective therapies exist that are very time dependent. And I think it's not necessarily a matter of what you do when, when you do see a patient with a large vessel occlusion stroke, but what have you done ahead of time to prepare for when that time occurs such that you can minimize the amount of time that door in door out time and, and really get that transfer going and, and really shorten that time to treatment for that patient. Secondly is the threshold to order a CT angiogram of the brain should be very, very low. It should be regarded as potentially like the EKG for acute MI. It helps tremendously in communication as well as the diagnosis and reducing the incidence of false positive transfers. And then lastly, is that for thrombectomy, it really should be something provided in more centralized care setting outcomes directly related to volume. I think high volume thrombectomy centers have so much to offer in terms of coordinated team care, short effective procedures, access to clinical trials, access to the newer devices. And Rush is one of these centers and we take tremendous pride in what we're able to accomplish as a team. Well, Dr. Chen, thank you so much for an informative conversation today. Thanks, Dan. I was happy to be here.